This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. When we were on the front lines, hummingbirds followed us round like the hummingbird we do. What we can When we Were on the front lines Hummingbirds Followed us round like the hummingbird, we do what we can. When we were on the front line, hummingbird. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, Technology Director for World Beyond War, and for today's episode, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to turn over hosting duties to my colleague at World Beyond War, Rachel Small, who is an energetic and dedicated peace activist who we're lucky to have as our Canada organizer. I'll be here in the room as well, but Rachel is going to be our primary host today and will introduce our interview guests. Take it away, Rachel. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for passing over the reins. So I'm Rachel. I'm totally thrilled to be co-hosting this podcast today, even more so to be welcoming two really incredible anti-war organizers to this conversation with us. But before I, I introduce them, maybe I'll first set the stage a little bit for the conversation we're going to have today. So me as a staffer at World Beyond War, but honestly, I think all the staffers at World Beyond War and our chapters and other members are constantly asked a few questions, but the one that stands out for me is, well, you say you're against war, and that's all great. Everyone's against war, but what's the alternative? So we could give, and we have given, many webinars on this topic. Managing conflict nonviolently is one of the three core strategies of World Beyond War's whole philosophy, our whole alternative global security system. But frankly, when rule of law uh, diplomacy have totally failed, when violence is underway, when there's an invasion, when there's military violence, um, both seasoned activists and newcomers in the anti-war movement often question whether unarmed resistance can be effective. What does nonviolent resistance look like facing occupation, facing war, facing invasion? We're going to be tackling this topic 
head on over three full days at our annual conference, No War 2023, in September. But this is going to be a different sort of conversation in the lead up, where we're going to dig into what does nonviolent resistance look like around the world. And now I think is the perfect time for me to introduce our two guests who are going to have this conversation with us. So first we have Randy Jansen, who has been involved with Unarmed Civilian Protection, UCP, as a practitioner doing accompaniment work around the world. As an ed educator, he co-created the first post-secondary program on unarmed civilian protection. Um, and as a researcher, he's recently retired professor of peace and justice studies and is currently involved in UCP work in Palestine, Burundi, and I suspect other places as well. So thrilled to have you here, Randy. And let me also introduce Rochelle. Rochelle Friesen trained with community peacemaker teams in 2017 and has done unarmed accompaniment in Iraqi Kurdistan, at the US-Mexico border, in Palestine, and on Wet'suwet'en territory here on Turtle Island. Currently, she's the coordinator of CPT's Turtle Island Solidarity Network, which does Indigenous solidarity. And through this work, Rochelle organizes accompaniment to various sites of Indigenous struggle and supports direct action. She's a passion and background in training facilitation, decolonization, and local peacemaking. And like me, she's a settler living here in Toronto, Tugurundo, which is the homeland of the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabek, Wendat, and recently the Mississaugas of the Credit. Welcome so much to both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. It is so great to be here. So my first question is just what brings you here? How did you get involved in the anti-war movement broadly and maybe specifically to, to peacemaking, to unarmed civilian protection, to accompaniment work. Why don't we, we start with you, Randy. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to this work. Boy, that's um, a good question. I guess my uh, background actually is Mennonite, although I'm not really connected to the community at, anymore. Uh, it certainly formulated my upbringing. I didn't come from a political family or an educated family, actually, but instilled in um, our community was definitely um, uh, the values of service, the values of um, pacifism and uh, justice. So that stuck with me even long after I left the Mennonite community where I grew up. I actually have a kind of professional background in healthcare and ended up teaching nursing for many years and then had the opportunity to go back to school and study peace studies finally in midlife. However, the other kind of turning point also was when I was um, madly in love with my wife, that was 30 years ago, um, she dragged me to Guatemala where we first did accompaniment work in 1993 with during the Guatemalan Civil War and when tens of thousands of Guatemalans had fled to Mexico for their safety and had then decided collectively to return. And they put, they organized themselves and put a call out to international accompaniers. And that was really my first taste uh, or uh, initiation to unarmed civilian protection. Since that time, I have actually been involved in CPT, um, going to Israel-Palestine on a delegation back in 2007 returning there last year and working as an intern and then this year uh, going back and here in our small community of Nelson BC on Sinaik's territory 
we have recruited a team of eight and we're going there to um, uh, accompany olive harvest uh, farmers during the olive harvest. That's a really brief thing. The other thing I also did is kind of professionally is I taught peace and justice studies at Selkirk College. So that was um, a big part of it. And, and part of that, my research was in UCP and uh, kind of my my focus, in addition to kind of teaching the core courses, was was just exploring and expanding the the field of UCP. What about you, Rasha? Well, Randy and I have some very some, some similarities in our story. I too actually was I was raised in a Mennonite family as well. My family definitely believed in like the tenets of pacifism. Um, they were political. Uh, they did a really great job at indoctrinating indoctrinating me into like nonviolence. And I became more and more, I had access to like listening to public speakers talk about nonviolent resistance and about peacemaking. And while I'm no longer like a practicing Mennonite today, it's still like that time in my childhood has definitely informed who I am today. In my early 20s, I studied politics, political studies in university, also spent time learning about peacemaking, and I did a lot of reading about what was happening in Palestine. Um, and then at some point I said, I'm done learning about it. I want to go myself. Um, so at 22, I went and my whole world sort of shifted on its head. I can definitely say that I was a very good white liberal peacemaking settler before I went there that often had politics that were, I wouldn't have said it then, but I can do the analysis now, uh, that was really rooted in a lot of white saviorism. But when I got there, everything turned on itself. I had this great opportunity to learn, to see what was going on, to be in shock that nothing I had read or seen or listened to could prepare me to seeing the various layers of violence that is part of Israel's settler colonial project. Along that journey, I became incredibly angry at Israeli settlers and Israelis in general until we had a, we hosted, the organization I was working for hosted a delegation of Indigenous folks from Turtle Island. And after spending time with them, I was like, huh, you know, kind of an Israeli settler, but in the Turtle Island context. So if I'm going to spend so much time being angry, what can I do to be part of a liberation project here in Canada? So that really expanded my politics. And so I spent actually quite a few years in Palestine before coming back to Canada. I then studied, did my master's here in Toronto, where I studied how Israel and Canada are settler colonial states rooted in white supremacy. Got involved in CPT and as a volunteer in various ways, but I definitely see the thing about CPT that we do unarmed accompaniment, but we are never neutral. And that's so core um, to the what I see the importance of peacemaking is. We are never neutral. We do accompaniment. We also do solidarity. We also take risks to do direct action. Um, and we're very clear about that, that the con conflicts, quote unquote, conflicts that are happening are all rooted in systemic structures of oppression. And so we have to take a side and we have to work to dismantle those systems of oppression. 
there's a whole bunch of follow up questions I want to ask. But first, I maybe want to like check in on some terms that some might not be familiar to our listeners and some frankly aren't. Uh, I'm not sure of the nuances myself. Turtle Island is a is a newer term that's being used by by many folks to talk about essentially the entire island of North America in a way that precedes the colonial borders and in a way that respects some of the indigenous histories of this place in in brief for those who are unfamiliar with that term. What I want to ask both of you to jump in on is I know CPT often talks about international accompaniment in addition to some of the other words around solidarity that you've talked about. And I am not sure what the distinction would be between words like international accompaniment and unarmed civilian protection and what are the different sounds like related, but what are the different models that each of your orgs use? I'll leave it up to you who wants to, to jump mm. in first to tease these apart. Go ahead, Rochelle. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, so CPT does international accompaniment. I won't jump into sort of like the differences, but I can sort of explain the model that we are doing, that we are currently doing. The thing is within our organization, we are an international organization. We did used to have a model where it was largely folks from North America going around the world. That has changed. So in Palestine, our our team in Hebron is largely Palestinian. It's led and it's directly led by Palestinians. We definitely have folks from various companies come and, and work on team as needed, but it's definitely Palestinian led. The team we have in Kurdistan also entirely Kurdish-led, while we do have internationals uh, come and help fill in the pieces. Columbia team, entirely Colombian-led. Where that differs a bit is we have a team at the the Aegean Migrant uh, Solidarity Team, which is in Lesbos, Greece, accompanying migrants. Because migrants are, it's a transient sort of position, we have folks from Greece, that are working on that project. And same at the U.S.-Mexico border, where we have folks accompanying migrants. And then our Turtle Island Solidarity Network, we admittedly are a settler uh, organized team um, that take our direction from indigenous leadership. Now, the great thing is when the economy is a little better and when we get the chance and when the visa restrictions aren't too high, we do also try and have like cross-pollination between teams. Uh, And so having folks from the Kurdistan team go on the Columbia team, folks from the Columbia team go on the Palestine team. And we definitely try and put resources to make that possible. And so that's what we mean by international accompaniment is that we are really trying to foster uh, a global community of folks that are able to do accompaniment and be in solidarity with communities around the world. And maybe just to take one step back, like, what is accompaniment? Why is it needed? What is accompaniment? That is a great question. Um, and it takes many roles, essentially. So like when we go somewhere, we need to be invited by the local community, right? And then we send a team if possible. And then what we see accompaniment is, in some ways, doing what is requested from the community we are with. And so sometimes that takes the role of doing legal observing. Sometimes that takes document doing documentation. In Palestine, uh, we have folks with CPT that accompany or walk uh, Palestinian kids to school that are at threat of being targeted by Israeli settlers or Israeli soldiers. Currently, we have a team of folks 
at Oak Flat being in solidarity with Apache Stronghold um, as uh, Resolution Copper wants to destroy the sacred territory there. So there we do unarmed accompaniment of one of the main leaders there who could potentially face threats. And it's just a it's accompanying him. What does that mean? Driving with him in his car, going as he does prayer walks around the sacred territory, keeping our eyes open to any potential threats and trying to keep things safe. Uh, during the teacher strike in Kurdistan several years ago, I believe it was in 2019. Um, it might have been a couple years before that. One of the main strike leaders was facing death threats um, from the secret police. And so CPT went and stayed in their home. When CPT was supporting 1492 Lambac Lane here in Ontario, it took the role of what was needed was supply drop-offs from Toronto to 1492, arranging groups to go visit 1492, going to court, documenting court support, helping develop advocacy materials. And so we see accompaniment really as the ability to respond to an invitation and then seeing what the community needs and providing that need if we can. Fascinating. Thanks, Rochelle. And what would you say, Randy, about unarmed civilian protection? What is that all about? Well, I think, as we all know, UCP isn't a household term yet, unfortunately, but it's getting there. Some people now are using the term UCP slash A, which stands for unarmed civilian protection slash accompaniment. And so the, the thought is those two terms taken together are represent the broad spectrum of what we're doing. Uh, I think you could also suggest that UCP is a, is a much broader kind of framework and accompaniment is one of those activities that happens within the broad framework of UCP. I don't, you know, it, some of those things might be helpful for people to understand. I don't think it's that important to come to uh, an understanding that we all kind of absolutely have to agree with, but it's just hopefully we can have that discussion so that people have a better understanding, for example, your question, so that maybe that adds a little clarity. The organization Nonviolent Peace Force is uh, perhaps the largest organization that that does UCP work, and they have a great, if you want to call it, a theoretical framework um, for people who like that stuff. And they kind of break it down into like, what are the pre key principles of UCP? What are the key activities? What are the sources of guidance? And what are the skills? And so kind of putting, putting or, or delineating those four concepts it, in, a, in a kind of a, a diagram can help, I think, uh, bring a lot of complex concepts and activities linking them all together in a way that visually kind of connects them all. I would just offer a really quick definition of UCP. UCP is the mobilization of trained, skilled people to volatile situations in order to reduce violence. Um, and so if you just break that down, it's like, you know, we're not just not, it's not just anyone going, it's people who have specific skills and um, volatile situation is a pretty broad term. And, you know, it's everything from a civil war to communities, uh, specifically communities that have a specific identity around the world that, that are feeling unsafe. Um, it can be in the national level or the, the community level. And um, ultimately the goal of UCP is not to win a 
a war or to win a conflict, it's to reduce violence. And uh, so it, to add to that a little bit, it's creating safer space for people. And, you know, you can argue about whether UCP is in fact activism itself or whether UCP folks try and create space so that local activists can carry out their work safe, more safely. And so you could have kind of a combination of those two. Um, I just know that in Guatemala, for example, we are definitely there to create safer space so that local folks could do their work. We weren't doing the work itself. We were there to create space for other people to do the work. And I think that's a very common model. I just want to add this because, Rachel, you mentioned this yesterday that both you and Rochelle are involved in local efforts in Toronto. And the same is going on here in Nelson. We had uh, a training here at Southford College, which was uh, where I worked, offering a UCP course to our community. And uh, initially there was no uptake. You know, what do people do with this anyway? And then suddenly um, there is an event in our town where a celebration of people who are trans was faced with a lot of threats. And so suddenly there was this huge interest from people from uh, the queer community who, uh, because next week here in Nelson, we have a bunch of pride events. And so we have formed a team of people who will be working with the pride organizers to do essentially accompaniment UCP work right here in our community. And what's really great is a lot of the people who are doing that are people who are going to be going uh, in October to, to Hebron. To, do, to continue that work upon the invitation of the team there. I'm so glad you brought that up, Randy, because while our conference, No More 2023, is really focusing on hearing directly from people around the world who have directly resisted military violence, whether that's people on the front lines of coups or invasions or colonial land grabs or occupation, like we'll be hearing directly from people in Ukraine and Colombia and Ecuador and Palestine and Honduras and Liberia who have all done this. I think that the context of this type of action of unarmed, uh, whether we're talking about accompaniment, whether we're talking about civilian protection, etc., can also be really relevant outside of war zones, right? Or outside of places where the most extreme versions of militarized violence are happening. So I would love to hear uh, more from, from both of you about kind of what specifically that can look like. What are the ways that these same skills can be applied, for example, in defense of pride events locally, um, I know Rochelle has done similar things in defense of encampment evictions, like people who are facing violence while not while homeless. Of course, share any other examples you'd like as well. But I think for a lot of our our audience, I, this can be really relevant in their own lives and where they live as well. Um, and is another, I think, aspect of anti-militarism and, and resisting violence besides the solidarity that we can do with people who are living in war zones? What can we do in our own cities? I love this question, Rachel, because I think people have a, a perception of what a war zone looks like. Um, but the thing is, is like, I will say here in Toronto, people are living in a war zone. People are cr criminalized uh, for being unhoused. They are attacked by the city that spends millions of dollars providing jobs to people to clean out encampments um, while not providing affordable housing. 
Um, I think under small L liberal capitalism, the society does a great job at um, giving this perception of calm that is happening. And if it is calm, then there isn't a war zone going on. But in Toronto, we definitely see a war playing out on folks that are living in poverty. Every day is a fight for survival. And I also think what we see, well, a lot of attention is focused on the U.S. in terms of the continued growth of the alt-right and white supremacist groups. Whatever happens there does happen here. And so we are seeing also um, increased attacks on pride events, on drag shows. Uh, We are seeing recently increased um, attacks on like public attack, people from the public attacking folks who are unhoused or who use safe injection sites. And so providing teams and training people in your own community to do this work becomes so important because it also means that if we can train people to do this sort of work, to do de-escalation, to keep people safe, then we can really work hard to abolish the police and the police force is a militarized occupying force here on Turtle Island. Their intention is to keep indigenous folks contained into space and to maintain private property. We know this, it's not about safety or protection. Um, They are a militarized force and we can even just look to the connections of the military in Wet'suwet'en where recently like David Petraeus who wrote the field manual for counterinsurgency in Afghanistan and Iraq, is part of KKR, which is funding the CGL pipeline. Uh, John Brewer, who was the NATO senior chief advisor for the police force in Afghanistan, is like part of CERG, RCMP. Global imperial powers are training our own police forces. Um, We also know the connections between uh, the RCMP and the police forces here and Israel, they learn from each other. They skill share from each other how to suppress political movements, nonviolent movements. And so it becomes it becomes like critical for us to be able to train our communities in how to keep each other safe. So we don't have to so that people don't even have the idea that we need to rely on the police. Um And just to like clarify, the RCMP is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that has been involved in kidnapping Indigenous children to take them to residential schools, um, that were maintaining borders in reservations and not letting Indigenous folks off reservations in the 1900s, and today is instrumental in criminalizing Indigenous land defenders um, across Canada. That was a tangent, but I love that question, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, and maybe for, uh, well, maybe one thing I'll say is that World Beyond War has been really involved in a campaign to abolish the KURG, another acronym, which is a newer branch of the RCMP that is extra militarized, extra violent. Um, and we've also have been part of campaigns to highlight the real history of the RCMP. If anyone's interested in following up, we bought with some allies the site, RCMP Heritage because they right now are celebrating celebrating their 150th birthday, making a big deal. Look how great we are. We've been around 150 years. And so we're highlighting the real heritage of the RCMP uh, with this site. Also, to add some context to what Rochelle's saying, 
the people who are being cleaned up, such a terrible phrase that is being used by the government, who are being violently evicted from the tents that are the only places they have to live, um, are overwhelmingly Indigenous people. And so understand the state violence that's happening now as part of ongoing colonial war that has been going on for hundreds of years, that is the foundational war of creating Canada. So it's, it's not hyperbole to call this war. This is how Indigenous people understand it. Um, I, I want to hear from, from Randy. And then I also want to hear from both of you, like, okay, so people need to get skilled up to do this work. Like what, what are some of the skills that people do need, uh, to learn? But first, Randy, tell us about some of, some of your local context around this. Like, like I said, we're uh, planning, uh, we have a two day training next week followed, uh, for a, group, a, a new group of folks. And then we have three events next weekend. Uh, pride events, which we're going to be um, in, um, enacting our locally formed UCP group, enacting all those skills and hopefully creating a safer space. And like I said, the people who are celebrating in the pride events, it's not really their job to be the ones confronting angry protesters. So it's their it's their role to uh, to celebrate and and to have fun. And so those of us who are going to be doing the UCP are typically um, typically from the community as well as allies, people who have said, you know, I'm going to take on the role. I'm going to do that work, uh, engaging in conversations with someone who might be holding a, a sign saying, you know, protect our children. I don't know. That might be a typical sign that um, a protester might hold is like, you know, alluding to the fact that, you know, the, the queer community is harming our children in a whole number of different ways and so um you know anger is um is it anger and fear are typical human responses and one of the uh, and they're they're legitimate and they're natural but when you're in the role of ucp part of it is to um through practice is to think about what's the best way to respond to someone who's protesting and one of the ways that we use is to simply engage people in conversations and uh, engaging in active listening skills and make them uh, feel that they're actually heard. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them. That doesn't mean we have to be their friends or anything. But knowing that if we actually just engage into, uh, let's say, an argument or a confrontation, those type of things can sometimes escalate into violence. And so in, in the immediate time of the parade or the barbecue or these events, what we tend to do is actually engage with people. And because we're in a small town, some of we, so many of us know each other and, you know, pro, people who, who may be protesting and people who may be celebrating, chances are they actually know each other. And so that's different when you're in a big city like Toronto. And so um, part of it is really just engaging and looking at, um, you know, non nonviolent compassionate communication skills and looking at underlying needs and finding connection. And again, like it's not, we're not necessarily needing to find agreement. We're just trying to, in that moment, in that time is, is reduce the likelihood of violence. Kind of the disarming yeah. possibility of conversation. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I know that some a tactic I've seen a lot recently in Toronto to respond to kind of the exact type of situation you're talking about in terms of someone is unfurling a big banner that is 
100% opposite to the message of the event that they're at. And in many cases is far more uh, harmful than just saying protect our children, like let's say really offensive things. Um, I've, a common tactic that's being used in Toronto is for people to be ready for that and to have their own banner on hand that they are ready to sort of hold up essentially blocking that banner without touching them. Is that is that part of the sort of toolbox that you folks would use as well? Or is that kind of a different topic? No, definitely. In fact, um, the, the Pride uh, organizers uh, managed to get some funding and they ordered a bunch of uh, rainbow umbrellas. And there's a group across North America that have used a tactic where if, if something like that occurs, that they will use their umbrellas, you know, the, they're very big and you know, bright rainbow colors, and they will use that to to uh, block um, offensive signs or material. And uh, Rochelle, I'd love to hear a bit more from you about like what are some of the specific skills that you think more people should be trained on so that they can do this kind of support in their own cities or towns. I mean, I think there is a lot of skills. I think one of the what I think is a very important skill is um, de-escalation tactics. And it's a, it's a tool. Like we, in our toolboxes, we need to have so many tools and de-escalation is just one tool, but having that as an option um, is incredibly useful. That is not to say that we don't always say de-escalate, de-escalate. We often say de-escalate, but we understand if your dignity is being violated, you might have to escalate, but we got to kind of plan for that, right? Like um, training people in how to document. So specifically like, um, making sure that when people are documenting or pulling out their camera, how do you hold the camera? And also, who do you film in that situation, right? Because we don't want to further criminalize people that are being targeted by white supremacy. I think an important skill set is basic things like how to keep your body regulated when like the adrenaline starts pumping to your heart and to your head. How do you keep your body calm? I definitely believe in like, um, if you have a, a counter protesting group, uh, you want to make them irrelevant. Right. And so I love this idea of unfurling a banner, but you're also going to, there's a very good chance, or at least I've been hit with a lot of aggression. Um, so how do you keep your body calm and regulated? If you see a community member in crisis on the street in Toronto, we have this horrible problem that people just keep on walking, right? Cause they don't know how. Uh, to engage with people in crisis or they're in fear. And so just like this skill set of like, no, like we are here to take care of each other and this is how you can step into those roles. And so I think those are some concrete skills. And then just like in terms of conversation in CPT, we often say like when we are trying to dismantle forms of white supremacy or capitalism, that those tough conversations uh can happen within your own community, whether it's your family or your chosen family um, or your close friendships. And that's where accountability can begin those tough conversations. And also, and I mean, it always depends, right? So like in CPT, we don't consider anger to be violence. Uh, We celebrate anger, but I know that like is different depending on which group you organize with, but folks need to, some folks need to become much more comfortable with anger. Um, And then once you become more comfortable with anger, you can figure out the best way to channel that anger, right? And it can be another tool in your toolbox. I'm just going to jump in with a a couple more examples. And and 
I think that there's an issue where there's some skills that have become professionalized or people feel like you have to be a professional to do them. I see a huge gap in we need street medics at protests or places where we think there might be issues. We need legal observers. You do not have to be a nurse or paramedic. You do not have to be a lawyer to fulfill these roles. But they're real skills that you have to build. You also can't just jump into them with no knowledge. But there's amazing tools online. There's literal hour-long YouTube trainings about basic street medics, first aid plus. Basic first aid plus, how do you deal with, with tear gas? How do you deal with pepper spray? Um, these are not mysterious substances at this point. We know what we can have on hand in our bag at a protest to support people if they face that type of state violence. Similarly, with, with legal observing, you don't need to be anyone's lawyer, but if there's someone on hand at an action who knows what to do when someone, let's say, is arrested and what are the actual useful things to find out so that you can then offer support, um, I think is really key. And I think these are roles that almost anyone can like study up and, and, and learn on with a group, let's say, and then be able to show up uh, to nonviolently support to accompany me company local movement. So that me, that's my pitch to people who don't know how to get involved in this. Those are things that you can Google and, and, and learn about. Mark? I'm imagining some people listening to this would be interested in using their own skills, but probably have no idea how to get started. Um, if I were listening to this, I would be. And so I'm curious, number one, how do you enter this world? I'm also curious, once you do become somebody who is qualified to do this, does it take over your life? You know, does it become like, you know, how do you balance your life with this type of activity once you begin doing it? Well, Rochelle, you do this for a living. How do I balance my life? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I would say it does take over your life uh, for sure. I think something um, that CPT has become, because, so CPT does lead trainings on like direct action, on de-escalation, on how to prepare to go to a protest. And we, we do it for like folks that are beginners uh, to this, uh, to this work and like give them tactical experience, figuring out what their core values are, how when you head into the street to take an action, there's your core values. But guess what? There's like 100 other people with you. How are you with other values? Right. How are you going to navigate that? Um, and increasingly we are always including at the end of our trainings, a portion on self-care and coming up with a self-care plan. Um, so yes, it does take over my life, but I do have my own self-care plan, which is really simple. Essentially, before I go to an action, I make sure there's a beer in the fridge, uh, for myself. So even when I'm at this action, if it goes late into the night, and it becomes stressful on like that drive home or that ride home at like 12 o'clock in the morning. You're still like getting the adrenaline out in my head. There's this beer in the fridge. Um, and when I get home, I'm just going to unwind that way, which is why boundaries are really important because it can take over. Um, and to live, to do this work, you will, you will experience trauma. You will experience vicarious trauma, um, and eventually you could experience uh, complex trauma, meaning like you see a oppressed, something oppressive happening 50 times, and on the 51st time, you just kind of break inside. 
Um, and so it's really important to train people also in like self-awareness around these things so that they can regulate when they're starting to approach that edge. Because in terms of like, when you do this work, it's not a matter of, oh, will I have some sort of mental health crisis at some point? Can I prevent it? I would say that's not, I think the trick is, okay, you are going to have a mental health crisis at some point. So what are you going to put in place or do for when that happens? Because I'm not quite sure how to avoid it, but I can prepare for it. I think that's such a valuable perspective. Um, if you do work paid or chosen or not paid, whatever, that, that means you're directly confronting, frankly, how messed up the world is, how much violence there is, how much people are suffering. I think we have to understand ourselves to be weird kind of robots or like head, just bodies without heads, with just heads or something, if, if we think that that's not going to personally impact us, right? So how do we instead go in expecting to be like humans and mammals and like people who have these, this terribleness and this violence is going to impact us? Like, how do we prepare for that versus like avoiding, 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 and then having a terrible burnout or a terrible crash? I, when I learned about uh, vicarious trauma, it was a game changer for me to understand that, like Rochelle said, like it's traumatic to be the one supporting the people in really intensive ways who face that trauma. It's a different kind of trauma, but it's also it's also traumatic, and it's it's really real to be impacted by that. You don't have to just suppress it because other people have it worse or other people faced it more directly. I'm curious how you would answer the question, Randy, about about balance and and life takeover and yeah. That's a good question, and I don't know if I've really thought about it a lot. Um, I don't do this full time, um, and I have other kind of things in my life that are quite unrelated and maybe more banal that maybe offer a balance. But one thing that I can find that I find overwhelming, not this type of work or this type of volunteer volunteerism, is um, sitting back and doing nothing, I find extremely morally distressing. When you watch the news and when you just uh, observe all of everything going around us in our communities and in our globe, the injustice and the suffering. And I find actually getting involved in doing uh, this work is in, in a way actually part of the therapy. Um, so I think it's always really um, helpful to get involved in meaningful ways. And I've noticed just, you know, people who are kind of getting involved in this work here locally is um, you, know, you end up forming uh, relationships with people who you're working together and uh, identifying and nurturing common values. And um, so I'm not trying to minimize the fact that there's trauma with it. Um, but I think at some way, getting involved in doing the work can be a part of the therapy to uh, minimize the, the trauma that, well, I don't know if trauma is not the right word, but the distress that I feel just being in this world. And so that's how I would answer that. I know that for me, when I became a parent, I was really forced to think about like, what am I going to shield my kid from? What are they going to be part of? And I ended up deciding that I was never going to try to shield my kid from how messed up the world was. Obviously, I've tried to keep them safe. Uh, but that instead, I was going to make sure from day one, they were surrounded by people who were fighting like hell to change it. Like, so they always knew, yes, things are deeply systemically messed up and unfair and terrible. 
And by the way, no one understands unfair better than a six-year-old. <laughs> they really get it. Um, yes, the world is messed up, but also look at all these people who are resisting every single day and you're part of that since day one. And, and that's been kind of my parenting philosophy. And, it, and it's hard, but I was a kid who struggled with seeing, uh, I became obsessed with the ozone layer when I was eight and seeing that the world, it seemed to me that the literal sky was falling apart and I never saw people resisting and trying to fix it. And so I'm, I'm trying out something different. I wanted to um, make a little bit of a pitch for what's going to be happening at our conference because it's so deeply related to everything we're talking about today. And also, uh, both of these organizations are, are involved. Really, the whole conference is about the potential of nonviolent resistance and, and what are the different ways that can look and how can that actually uh, counter state violence and other violence um, especially militarized violence. So we're going to be opening with peace researcher, peace researcher Georgian Johansson, who has spent his his life really studying what can we learn from the last 100 years um, of nonviolent struggle from the successful ways that uh, German resistance ended the French occupation back in 1923, all the way up to what is the nonviolent resistance that nobody is reporting on that's happening in Ukraine in 2023 right now. Um, we'll move to a panel that Randy will be moderating that really highlights, yeah, what does unarmed civilian protection and accompaniment look like around the world where a CPT staffer from Colombia will be presenting on what the context is in Colombia, other speakers from all over the world. We are going to be hearing from Liberian activist Vaiba Flomo, personal hero of mine, who was instrumental in literally ending Liberia's 14-year civil war through nonviolent resistance led by women. Incredible success story that I will hazard to say like very few people outside of the African continent have heard of. We'll hear from folks in Honduras who uh, have resisted and been imprisoned and faced violence ever since the 2009 military coup but recently elected an incredible new leader in Honduras who is breaking from that militarized trend. Um, we'll hear about Pashtun nonviolent resistance movements. Uh, I mean, I, I could go on and on, but I also want to highlight that we are going to have a training session, Halting War with Nonviolent Struggle, that is going to teach some of the practical skills that we've, uh, that we've talked about today. Not so much the street medic and the legal observing, but definitely how can anti-war and peace activists be more strategic and effective in our work and intervene in what's happening in the world in front of them. There's lots more that I can pitch. If you're hearing this after the conference has happened, this is your invitation to go to our website and listen to all of these incredible sessions that will be recorded and that will be shared afterwards. We've also got some live performances, some incredible uh, music that's going to be happening. I think it's going to be a really powerful weekend that will bring together people. Uh, usually at least 20 countries are represented. So it's always people who are in capital W, capital Z war zones, as well as people who are uh, in, in North America, in, in places where they're either thinking more about solidarity or thinking about how they resist state violence in their own cities like we've talked about today. We do this conference every year. I personally encourage everybody to come to our conferences because I became 
technology director of World Beyond War by walking into a conference. I bought a ticket and was just an attendee. And then, wow, here I am, the technology director. So because I, because I was so interested in what I learned, to be in a group of anti-war activists from all over the world is an experience that most people will never have. And here's a chance to have it. I would love to just address the crisis in Ukraine, the blazing war that's blowing up Europe right now in the context of nonviolence. It feels like we're in a moment of wild war propaganda and nationalism. Um, I feel like more than at any point, at least in the past 10, 15, maybe 20 years, we're being told that anything other than calling for our countries to send more weapons to Ukraine, support in every possible way is, is just a horrible stance, it's evil. Um, and it has felt for me like a very tough time to be an anti-war activist, to be pushing for any other way that a violent invasion can be resisted besides just sending billions of dollars in weapons, what I would call like fanning the flames of war. I'm curious to hear from both of you what uh, either what your organizational response has been or what are some of the uh, philosophies and techniques that you bring that you think might be relevant or might be worth people considering in this context. Okay, uh, do you mind if I go first? Please. Okay, so um, when, when I work at Salford College, um, one of my roles is engaging in research on UCP and it's a pretty small field, but it's growing. I mean, the, the field of re peace research is much bigger, but a couple things we did was back in 2014, we did a national survey of Canadians to see what they thought of UCP. And of course, no one knew what UCP was, so we had to explain it to them, which is fine. But the vast majority of Canadians actually thought it was a good idea if, we were, if the government of Canada were to incorporate UCP into the foreign policy. And what that might look like, you know, in an ideal world, instead of, you know, when there's crisis in Libya, uh, instead of uh, doing an illegal uh, maneuvers through NATO, that instead we send uh, nonviolent uh, folks down there to create safe for the local activists to create change within the, within the society. That was just one example of what that might look like. And the majority of Canadians actually think that's a great idea when they were asked that question. Um, the biggest question that uh, in that same survey, when when people said, so what questions do you have of us? And the, the largest response was, this sounds dangerous to send unarmed people into volatile situations. And so the other piece of research we did was to compare um, something fairly crude. It's the best we could based on the data we had was compare um, the mortality rate of UCP folks with United Nations uh peacekeepers and United Nation peacekeepers are 12 were 12 times more likely to be killed in their line of work than were UCP people in all over the world so that was interesting and I would just like to say that we we at self-controls we have a, a database and um, so we're trying to uh, track and kind of uh, document all the organizations around the world that use this um, activities that we broadly call UCP. And in 1990, when we start, uh, there were seven organizations and now there are about 61. Certainly we haven't captured them all. There's many, especially local community organizations that we're still not aware of. And, that, and they are active in 44 regions around the world. So it's growing. Um, 
Ukraine is such a missed opportunity. And like you say, we don't even, it's not even in our discussion, in our mainstream discussions about nonviolent um, opportunities. We have just glommed onto the, the war narrative without any looking back or looking sideways. This is an incredibly difficult question um, that we often get asked. Um, so one thing about CPT is we only go to places that we have been invited to. We also operate on a very small budget. Uh, CPT is an anti-war organization, and so we are against war. But we haven't, and we have made a statement condemning uh, the war on Ukraine. Uh, we definitely stand in solidarity uh, with folks who are who are occupied. And we have had um, folks with CPT join groups that are thinking about doing unaccompanied in Ukraine and what that could look like. Um, but I think where it becomes a bit of a challenge for us is because we are an international organization. Um, and yes, Ukraine does affect everybody internationally, but like we have teams in Palestine and like the most recent Israeli raid on Janine, like that took a lot of, that takes a lot of attention and work energy, both to document that and to be in solidarity with people around that. We look at what's happening in Winnipeg with Indigenous women's bodies being found in landfills and the governments being unwilling to fund it. And so we are trying to put energy there, trying with our very limited resources, we are trying. We have increased bombings in Iraqi Kurdistan, where Turkey is regularly bombing the mountainous region of Iraqi Kurdistan. And this isn't hitting um, mainstream news. We also have like our communications coordinator lives in Shillong, India, which is right on the border of Manipur, where there is a lot of fear that genocide is going to start taking place. And we don't have conversations about that. And so CPT, we are against war 100%. We have gone to anti-war protests here um, around Ukraine. Um, we definitely love the work World Beyond War is doing. Um, we have condemned the purchase of the F-35s because we know uh, who that's going to be used against. But I think there is sometimes this frustration frustration that people do and we appreciate that people respect us and want us to flush out a really full concrete analysis on Ukraine but the places where we work are so violent that that is where we are putting our attention on um, and responding to the invitations of our partners that are there on the ground to, to address it that way, if that makes sense. And of course it does all affect like Ukraine is causing, the war in Ukraine does also cause then like a rise in bread prices because of the cost of wheat, which then creates more disparity um, between the rich and the poor in places like Iraq uh, or in Palestine. And so like, yes, it is all interconnected. Yes, we would love to be able to develop a further analysis, but we are really trying to focus on where we are and supporting our partners where we are the best we can. And I think what you're raising brings up such an important point that all other violent conflicts and wars don't just immediately stop because something new has started. But you would think that if you paid attention to mainstream media, because it does feel like the space to talk about 
humanitarian issues, like global conflicts in other places. Like it's like, oh, the international chunk of any local newspaper is already full. So there can be no space for anything else. So we've been working for years in Canada in solidarity with people uh, from Yemen who have just faced a, a, what many have called the worst humanitarian situation on the planet for the past many years. We've been trying to stop the Canadian weapons makers from continuing to send tanks and weapons to Saudi Arabia that are fueling this ongoing war, etc. And so we've worked a lot with expat in many communities here in Canada. And it has been like a punch to the gut for them to see the supports that are being extended to Ukrainians fleeing war. And they do not feel like, oh, that should never have happened. They feel like, wow, look what is possible. How can that also be extended to us? And we've suffered for so many years and where the Canada is part of, and, and there's no pathway for us receiving any kind of support in Canada. And yet, uh, historic new processes to grant uh, residency rights to people fleeing the Ukrainian war have been have been rolled out. This is not a competition. This is a wow, look what's possible. How do we advocate to that for that for all victims of war? It's, it's a challenging space, I think, in which to in which to advocate right now. We will be digging into this in the conference in two ways that I'm really excited about. We have one panel on nonviolent resistance to war in Ukraine, where we'll be hearing stories that are absolutely never in the media about nonviolent resistance that is happening even in the midst of this very, very armed and weaponized war. Like we, And we'll be hearing from uh, a World Beyond War board member, actually, John Ruer, who's been central in an unarmed civilian project that is literally sending people to protect a nuclear power plant in Ukraine, um, using the principles of unarmed civilian protection in a way that like the, the harmful impacts of a nuclear power plant being compromised by this war are almost unfathomable. And so for them to put their bodies in its protection is is what they see as one of the most valuable ways that they can support human life and, and prevent violence. We'll also be hearing from Ukrainians about what are the ways that nonviolent resistance is happening, as well as an expert on conscientious objectors, which again, are never reported. Those uh, both in Russia and Ukraine, who are refusing to engage in the war, refusing to fight at great personal cost. Um, and we'll close out the, the war with a debate. People are constantly trying to debate us on our in our emails, on anywhere that we engage. Um, so we're going to host a formal debate, uh, basically about whether Russia had no choice but to invade Ukraine based on what was politically happening, whether Ukraine had absolutely no choice but to fight Russia in the war as it's currently going, or whether perhaps Russia and Ukraine both had better options than war and continue to have better options than war. So it'll be a fierce debate, and I'm really looking forward to listening to it. And another guest will be Yuri, Yuri Shiliazenko, who is very much a civilian pacifist who I believe needs protection but isn't able to get it because he, uh, I don't know the exact terms, but he's as a pacifist, a Ukrainian pacifist in Kiev, he is um, virtually under house arrest. And I think, um, I, I wish that there were a way to protect people like him. And he will be a, another speaker at the conference. And um, I've, I've also asked him to be on the podcast. He's he, as a Ukrainian pacifist, he's very busy around the world. I guess I also just want to throw in one observation, which is that 
if the Ukraine-Russia-NATO war were not a proxy war over global oil supplies and other financial benefits, then unarmed civilian protection would work. I don't think unarmed civilian protection can help a proxy war that's determined, designed to generate profits for oil companies. Um, so I think that's why we can't be having it. But I do think the people in Ukraine need protection and the people in Russia who are forced to fight, often, you know, prisoners being sent to the front lines as soldiers, they need protection too. But unfortunately, I don't think we, I don't think your great organizations, including ours, World Beyond War, are able to give that protection at this point. I think that there's, if we're talking sort of all or nothing, like 100% of the weaponized fighting be replaced by 100% unarmed civilian protection. Yeah, I think I think you're right that this is a really <laughs> tricky thing, tricky thing to pit against each other right now. However, it's not all or nothing, right? Like there absolutely, first of all, there already are, and there can be more nonviolent resistance projects happening there that do have an impact on the war that's happening. Like any fewer lives lost is a win, in my view. Maybe not a capital W, the win that we that we want, which is an immediate in my mind, ceasefire and end to war. Um, but this is a matter of degrees, right? And I think every way that we we can shift what's happening is important. To fill in on what Mark said, as of recording this podcast in August 2023, yeah, Yuri Shelyazenko, our, our board member from Ukraine, has been formally charged with, by the Ukrainian government with the crime of, in quotes, justifying Russian aggression by advocating for peace. So this is the current... Uh, state of, of, of being a peace activist and an anti-war activist in, in Ukraine right now. It's, it's a very scary time. On that somber note, is there anything else that either of you would like to, would like to say before we wrap up for today? Can I just uh, wrap up with two things? There is a, a global gathering of UCP organizations in Geneva in October, and it's going to be uh, really interesting because it's bringing people from all different kinds of organizations together to just kind of compare notes, essentially. And so that's going to be exciting. And I'm going to put a shameless plug in for a book called Unarmed Civilian Protection, A New Paradigm for Protection and Human Security, uh, put out by Bristol University Press. And uh, I, along with two other co-editors, uh, it's a collection of, cha of, um, of um, chapters from authors from all six continents. And I'm just going to quickly summarize the points of it, of what it demonstrates. UCP is A, effective, B, it's supported by people, C, it's cheaper than conventional uh, military operations, uh, D, it's way better for the environment, and finally, E, the, the evidence shows that it's much better at breaking cycles of violence. We'll put a link to the book in the show notes, of course. And might I suggest a great way to support books like this is to ask your library, your local library, your university library, if they will order it, because that's a great way to get uh, it accessible to lots of people. I just want to plug like in community peacemaker teams, we do have workshops and trainings uh, that we can provide groups. So whether it is, let's say you're part of a community that's just getting started um, in wanting to go to a protest, but it kind of makes you feel a little anxious. We do a very beginner's workshop that way. If you want to do a training that's more intensive, um, we can provide that as well. Uh, we've done trainings for church groups, union groups, activist groups, 
Um, so we really work hard to try and meet people where they're at uh, and skill build from there. All of our programs also have delegations. Um, and so you can go and spend two weeks on the ground with our teams, learning about the situation, building those hands-on skills, living as a community. Um, our Turtle Island Solidarity Network delegation is wrapping up tomorrow on August 25th, 2023. Um, and they've just spent 10 days in Winnipeg, Grassy Narrows, Camp Morningstar, um, learning about colonization there. This coming fall, we have two delegations to Palestine as well as to Lesbos, Greece. Um, so they provide great learning opportunities. However, I fully understand that, and you can learn more about that at www.cpt.org. I also understand that um, given people, where people are at in life, uh, these things aren't always available. In CPT, we believe that all conflict is rooted in structures of oppression. So take time to learn about what is happening in your community. Um, if you live in an urban center on Turtle Island, there is definitely um, lethal war zones taking place with the state attacking unarmed civilians. And there are ways to get involved. And that's really, really important. So please take time to learn about what's happening in your community, how you can get involved. Because, yeah, the way capitalism operates in our communities, it will always create death zones for people. Um, and so there are ways that we can resist that. I love that as a closing note. Thank you so much to you, Rochelle, to Randy. Absolutely, everyone should look up what CPT does, what UCP does, and learn more. I feel like we've just scratched the surface. So thank you so much to both of you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.